The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. In 1973, the Sparks Bicentennial Commission convened to find a memorable way the city could celebrate the nation's 200th birthday. The commission decided that there was no better way for the rail city to commemorate such a milestone event than to honor Sparks' railroad origins with the James C. Lillard Park, chock full of railroad memorabilia. An executive car and caboose, once owned by the Southern Pacific Railroad Company, were transported for free by the company from their location in Houston, Texas, and were transported from the railroad yards to the park's construction site on B Street, now Victorian Avenue, using two Caterpillar tractors, leaving only one inch of clearance through the 14th Street viaduct under Interstate 80. The narrow-gauge locomotive engine 8 was loaned by the Nevada State Museum in Carson City and was transported on two flatbed trucks. Harris Club cleaned and refurbished the interior of the executive car, and many of the antique furnishings were provided by the community. By the time the park was opened on July 4, 1976, it was a true community effort, from vision to funding to execution, and is still able to be admired today via the Sparks Museum train tours. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Dick Dryling, former president of the board of the Sparks Heritage Museum and the board's current secretary. Dick hosts weekly train tours of the Engine 8 train and its accompanying cars at the Lillard Park train station from 1 to 4 p.m., weather permitting, of course. Dick is an avid collector and lover of history and is the 2022 winner of the Silver Governor's Points of Light Volunteerism Award in the category of Lifetime Achievement. He has been an essential part of the telling of the Sparks story at the Sparks Heritage Museum. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Dick Dryling. Welcome to the podcast today. Um, to start off, I'd love to know, what is your personal history with the city of Sparks, and how did you become involved with the Sparks Museum? Well, I actually grew, grew up in Reno, graduated in Reno High School, and I joined the Navy. 30 years later, when I retired from the Navy, I was stationed at Fallon. So I told my wife, I said, go in town and find us a place to live. And she came back and said, oh, yeah, I got And it turned out we went in to look at it and turned north on Pyramid, and I said, there's nothing out here. <laughs> I used not jackrabbits out here. Well, no, no. We went out pretty soon. We found a new construction area. So we bought a house. Mailing dress is Sparks. So suddenly I became a Sparks resident. <laughs> and... Uh, the way I got hooked up with the museum is I'm a, I'm a stamp collector, and our stamp collector was meeting in Reno at the uh, University uh, Physics Building. And when we moved from there, because of problems we were having with the university, the Sparks Museum agreed to let us meet there, provided we would supply volunteers. Mm. And I thought, well, what the heck, I like museums, so I volunteered. And kind of the rest is history. Uh, I've done everything in the museum. I've done three terms as uh, three two-year terms as president. 
Uh, I'm currently uh, secretary of the board. I do Saturday uh, tours on uh, through the train, assuming temperatures below 90 and, and above 30. Sure. And uh, just have a good time. Uh, I love it. That's wonderful. So speaking of the train over at Lillard Park, right. uh, we talked about that actually in our first podcast with Scott Carey, also a member of the board, um, of how that train came to be. But how did you become involved in it? And uh, how did you start spearheading as the conductor of these train tours? Well, as I said, they they had gotten permission to use the train after in 2010, they got a, to restoration because the business car had been, the rope had been sprung Water got in and damaged the inside, so the train was closed. Nobody could go in. So they got a federal grant. They restored the caboose and the business car. They didn't touch the engine because it didn't belong to them. Uh, and then at the museum, they said, okay, now we can start doing tours. So what, who would like to go through and learn about the train? I said, well, I would. So we went through, did a tour. And it was all finished. They said, okay, who would like to do tours? And nobody wanted to do it except me. I said, I will. So after the first couple of tours, I thought, well, gee, I'm conducting tours. I don't look like a railroad guy, and I'm not a railroad guy. But maybe I can get to look like a railroad guy. So I went online, and I bought a conductor's hat. I went down to a local uh, store and bought a black vest. Had black buttons, so I had to buy gold buttons to put on there. Make it, that's the way conducts would look. And eventually added a, a pocket watch. Turned out to be a conductor's watch. Bought my great grandfather, and I bought a gold fob. And uh, now I'm I'm a conductor, <laughs> and I enjoy doing the tours on on Saturdays. They're, they're a lot of fun. That's wonderful. Now you were telling me before we started recording today a little bit about the history of your pocket watch. Would you would you care to tell our <laughs> listeners about that? It's an excellent well, story. Well, my my uh, grandfather had passed away, and there's a whole story about that, but it, we won't go into that at the time. And uh, the lady who was going doing putting things away and so forth contacted me, and she said, uh, "We've got a lot of stuff that belonged to Troy." Would you be interested? And I said, sure, because we, we had nothing on him. And uh, so she sent me a whole box of junk, and in it was a pocket watch. And I thought, well, that's nice. And I wound it, and it started ticking. But, of course, time was not set. And I pulled on a stem, pulled on a stem, nothing happened. And pretty soon I said, over on the watch, and then it quit working. So I took it down to a local jewelry shop that advertises that they do antique repairs. And uh, they said they have to send it off, to have it checked over. And uh, if I wanted to pay for the, the restoration, the shipping cost of 35 bucks I had to pay up front would be uh, applied to it. So about two weeks later, I got a call and she said, uh, I think you need to come down here. We want to talk. Okay, fine. She said, I've never seen a, a quote on a pocket watch like this. And I said, what do you mean? She says, $2,500. Wow. And I said, oh. I said, did you find out when the watch was, was made? She said, that's 1904. Well, that suddenly 
took it away from my grandfather and put it to my great-grandfather because my grandfather was born in 1901. Wow. So obviously it did not belong to him. And then I researched and found out that my great-grandfather had run a stage line out of Cody, Wyoming, and it makes sense that he would have a good watch. So I asked the lady, I said, now I can't set the, the, the hands. How do I do that? And she said, well, you unscrew the bezel here. See this little lever, pull it up, set the hands, put the lever down, put the bezel back, and that's how it works. And I said, why is that? She said, well, it's a conductor's watch. If you had the time where you pull the stem up and change, that could happen in a conductor's pocket and set the time. And when trains, time is essential. You have to know when trains are on what track, and the only way you do it is accurate time. So it became my conductor's watch. That's amazing. And also, it's so great that, by coincidence, it's the same age as the city of Sparks. Yes. In 1904. Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. Well, speaking about your train tours, so it seems like rather by accident you've become the museum's resident train expert. Yes. Despite not having <laughs> much of a previous connection to it, but that's amazing. So without being there physically, which I recommend that all of our listeners, if you have not taken one of the Saturday train tours with Dick, to definitely take part in it because we always get glowing reviews. You do an excellent presentation for people of all ages, including our school tours that come through. Um, so kind of just give us a, a, a virtual walkthrough of sorts of how you start your tours. And Okay, well, every Saturday, uh, starting at 1 o'clock, my tours last about 45 minutes, so they're scheduled at 1, 145, 230, and 315. They are free. Uh, they are family-friendly tours. You can bring your children. They're not going to hear anything that they shouldn't hear. And uh, so we go aboard. I, well, I explained to them the fact that we have two different cabooses in the yard. The oldest of the two is 1941 Cupola caboose. And that's the one that's hooked up to the, in a train. The other one is a bay window caboose, and that came along later. So then we go aboard the train, and I explained that the, the car that looks like a passenger car from the street was actually built in 1911 as a passenger car. Wow. In uh, 1928, I believe it was, the Southern Pacific had a branch line running out of Houston, Texas, where this car was operating. They bought the car, didn't want a passenger car. Took the yards, gutted it, and converted it to a railroad executive business car. And that's what we have here today. It's a beautiful thing. It had a full time, it had a cook, uh, a kitchen, and a pantry. Of course, a full time cook and a full time porter. They usually carried a, a, a secretary. Secretaries are always men. Uh, in fact, instead of, in, except for call girls, the railroad didn't hire any women until World War II. Wow. And then only for work in the offices, never in the yards or out on the trains. Now, every once in a while I mention that, people's eyes would go crazy when I say the railroad hired call girls. <laughs> Sparks was a major division point. In the early days, hardly anyone had telephones. So if they had one on a special train or they had something going, they would send call boys and call girls to go out and knock on people's doors and call them to work. Oh. <laughs> I choose to leave out call boys because I like to see the eyebrows get all excited. <laughs> but the, the car has the equivalent of four bedrooms, four bathrooms, three with tubs and showers, plus a full kitchen and a pantry 
and iceboxes and mechanical air conditioning. Now, we're talking 1926, mechanical air conditioning. That entire car was air conditioned. Mm. But it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's all restored inside, really looks nice. The next part, of course, is the caboose. And as I said, it's a cupola caboose. The cupola is a little house on top. And I allow people to climb up in the caboose, or at the cupola if they want to. Uh, if children are along, I will not allow them up unless their parents approve it. Sure. And now to make sure everyone understands, when you're climbing ladders like that, you always face the ladder going up and down. You never turn your back on a ladder. Because mm. your heels will slip off hurt bad. And then I tell the story about how the, the train operated and, and uh, the fact that the conductor is actually in charge of the train, not the, not the engineer. Engineer's a tough job and responsible job. There's no way he would know when it was time or safe to start the train. Mm. Only the conductor could tell him that. And then we get to talking about the, the duties of the brakeman, what he had to do back there. And then I have to drop it on him and say, the three cars we have sitting out here, as it consists, could never have operated together. Absolutely impossible. And why is that? The business car and the caboose are standard gauge. The wheels are 54 and a half inches apart. Hmm. The engine is narrow gauge. Wheels are 36 inches apart. So they just don't match up. <laughs> but it's important that we have that particular engine because it was built in, in uh, 1904, or 1907, excuse me, for the Nevada-California-Oregon Railway. And so it ran out of Reno. And uh, the NCO, there's going to be people get mad at me at this, the NCO is two steps above the tuna trolley. It was kind of a joke for railroad. Mm -hmm. uh, they ran from Reno via uh, Alturas, California, to Lakeview, Oregon, about 245 miles. When you started laying track in Reno in 1881, they just went bananas. The boy just really going along. About 45 miles later, they flat ran out of money. So they could service Susanville, but that's all they could do. It took several years before they got enough money to go another eight or ten miles. They finally made it to Lakeview, Oregon in 1912. It took them 31 years to lay track all the way to Lakeview. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, by comparison, the Central Pacific Railroad, who came through here in 1864 and created the city of Reno, went from Sacramento to Promontory Summit, Utah, 796 miles, in 13 months. Mm. And most of that 13 months was trying to drill holes and coming across the Sierras. Uh, because they, they ended up with 30, uh, 46 miles of snowsheds and tunnels coming across that mountain. And they found out those mountains are all solid granite. And uh, with the, the equipment of the day, it was really tough. And then, of course, I go out and talk about we go out and talk about the engine, and I make sure that uh, if I have couples, I would have the lady stand on the side where the engineer would be, and the gentleman on where the brakeman, fireman would stay. 
And I explained to him that the, the engineer is in charge. That means the woman is in charge. <laughs> and I looked the man in the eye and I say, get used to it. <laughs> From now on, the lady, the woman is always in charge. I keep like a, that. Keep in mind, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and I explained the various controls that I know of. There's a lot of men there I, I don't know about because I'm, as I said, I'm not ex-railroad. And I make sure that everybody gets a chance to ring the bell. Everybody loves to ring the bell on that engine. Mm. And then I send them on their way and get ready for next tour. <laughs> That's excellent. Yes, as I said, highly recommend taking that train tour if you get the opportunity because nothing beats going on it in person and actually being able to see every detail of these three independent cars yeah. and the engine that um, that would never otherwise be together in the same space. That's correct. Wow. And the question comes up, why are they here anyway? Well, in 1975, the president put out an, an announcement that he would like all cities across the country to try, try to do something special for the next year's bicentennial celebration. Mayor Jim Lillard of Swarks, they formed a bicentennial committee and decided all the things they could do, and he said, we are a railroad town and we have absolutely nothing to show for it. Since they built the freeway across, we can't even see the tracks. Our kids in high school don't understand why they're called the railroaders. Why don't we do a rail park? And everyone says, oh, yeah, cool, yeah. Well, now the next thing is where to get equipment. Well, the long time, basically people who created the city of Sparks, Southern State Railroad, They contacted him and said, do you have any rolling stock that we can use for a show? And they said, yeah, sure. And uh, they had the caboose and the business car had been retired in Houston, Texas, because that's where they operated. So they hooked it to him and hauled him up to Reno uh, or to Swarks and donated him free of charge. Didn't charge it for the cars or anything else. And they said, he said, how about an engine? They really wanted a Malay the huge cab-forward locomotives that were only used by Southern Pacific. And they said no. There's only one of those left, and it's down to Sacramento. It's not in good shape and can't be restored. And that's when they were looking around, seeing what in the world to do for an engine. And that's when they realized, hey, wait a minute, Carson City Museum has a, an engine. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, it has history with us. It used to be Nevada, California, Oregon, running out of Reno. Mm. Of course, the question comes, how did it get to Carson City? Yeah. <laughs> About 1920, the Nevada, uh, California, Oregon went out of business. And so Southern Sick had narrow-gauge tracks running from Minot, Nevada, across the Montgomery Summit, down through the Owens Valley to Keeler, and it was narrow gauge. So they bought engines number 8, 9, and, and 18 from uh, NCO and hauled them down. Well, they took them to Sparks and changed their color because NCO's color was olive green and silver. Talk pukey colors. <laughs> changed them to the black and white that Southern Pacific uses. And it operated down there until 1955 when actually 
started about two years, a couple of years before that, the mines around mine had dried up. So they abandoned the tracks going over the Montgomery Summit because that's a beast of a mountain. And so the, the trains were running from Laws, which is six miles out of Bishop, to Keeler, about a 70-mile trip. And they had three engines and three crews. So each engine was making one trip every three weeks. Didn't take Southern Pacific long to figure that. It was a total waste of money. Mm. So in 1955, they retired all three of the locomotives. They took uh, number 18 and donated City of Independence. And since then, the Independence has done a total restoration on it. Got it steamed up. Got a federal authorization to steam it up. They're laying track. They're getting ready to do a, 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 a kind of a demonstration thing for people to ride. Number nine uh, was donated to City of Bishop. Well, since the depot was at Laws, that's where they put it. And they had built a ghost town all around the, the train. And it, it's really cool because every building is a museum of what it says it is. Mm. Barber shop, undertaker, parlor, everything. I mean, it is so cool. Wow. And uh, it's not that far to drive down there and, and see it for a day. And number eight, they donated to Carson City Museum. Well, at the time, Carson City Museum was undergoing construction. And they had no space for it. So they put it in a little museum on, on Side Street. And when it got close to 1964, the state centennial, I said, you know, we better put that on display here. So they brought it down, put it north of the old post office, put a chain link fence around it, and that's where it sat. And so that's where it finally came from, and, and it was hauled up here and donated. Well, actually, it wasn't donated. It was leased to the city. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, we're so glad that we have it right outside the Sparks Museum. And, of course, the city of Sparks being known as the Rail City, the whole reason for its existence was because of the railroad line coming through. Now, of course, in the 1950s, that all changed when Southern Pacific abandoned steam locomotives. Um, and the city has since gone on and blossomed in different ways and uh, is becoming a, a city with a new brand image and different things in its own right. But why do you think it's important to preserve the the history of Sparks as, as a railroad town? It's important for everyone to, to keep their own history even. Uh, it, it's important for you where your ancestors came from. I do genealogy. It's interesting to me. We're doing the genealogy of a city. It's no different. The city was actually created out of a swamp. Mm. When the Central Pacific Railroad came through here, they went to Reno. They wanted to put their maintenance yards right next to it, to Reno, because it, it was the only major city in the state at that time. Speculators jacked the price of land up, and I said, to heck with you. And then they looked east, but they could. There's a swamp there. Sparks was a swamp. I have a photograph showing it. So they went around the swamp, into the canyon, went down to Wadsworth, and that's where they built their maintenance yards. When Southern Pacific bought out to the Central Pacific, they said that the Pleasant Railroad 
said, uh, I'm going to make a deal. I would only tour and, and select my tracks. Well, from Ogden to uh, Sacramento, he was not happy at all. He had had steep grades. He had had sharp curves, many curves. But you have to think back when they were building it. Those railroads were paid by the mile of track delayed. So if you approach a small hill, instead of making a cut through it, you went around it. That's an extra couple miles. They got like, I don't know, roughly $25,000 a mile for laying a track. Wow. Plus I received 10 square miles of free land. So they, they made it like bandits. And uh, he also decided that their, the grades were t- too steep. So he said, okay, I want to resurvey and let's make it more efficient. Well, when they finished their, their layout, the tracks were five miles south of Wadsworth. Well, rather than have trains go up there, it made sense to move the rail yards to Nexus Front Arena because that was a business area. So they actually hauled in enough dirt and filled in the swamp. At one time, I did some research on it. They took 345,000 cubic yards of dirt and gravel and filled in a two-mile stretch oh. from about the, the asylum past where the railroad is today. And that is at the turn of the 20th century before yep. modern technology. Yep. <laughs> That's incredible. And they knew that there were periodic floods in this area because that, obviously that's why they had to fill in the swamp. Well, when they had all packed down and, and ready to go, start building on, they did a measurement. The level of the, the, where the railroad yards would be were 15 feet above the highest watermark of any flood Reno had ever experienced. That's why today the city of Sparks downtown has never had a flood. Wow. You don't get that much water. If you, if you got enough water to get there, you'd be flooded the entire valley. So Sparks made it like a bandit on that. Wow. Now, can you speak about the significance of the Sparks Roundhouse? Um, and it's my understanding that you have a personal connection in regards <laughs> to <laughs> an exhibit within the Sparks Museum. Yes, I do. The Sparks Roundhouse, when it was constructed in 1904, was the largest building west of the Mississippi. It's been said it was actually the largest roundhouse in the world at that time. It had 40 stalls on about a 270-degree arc, and it was huge. Uh, it, it stood about, uh, I'm just guessing here, but about 60 to 70 feet tall. Uh, one article uh, I read talked about they had, they're getting ready to start laying brick for the walls because it's all brick construction. And they had 1,620,000 brick ready to go. <laughs> and they, they put them in. And uh, in the museum, we have an aerial photo uh, showing the roundhouse part of the rail yards. And I noticed that a lot of our visitors would look at that photograph and they had no clue 
what what's go, what they're looking at, because the photograph from the air shows only the back of the roundhouse. So we'd always have to explain to them, oh, well, there's tracks going in, and it's like a maintenance garage and so forth. And I thought, you know, the simplest way to do that is just make a model. Hmm. Now, I have to admit, I am not a model maker. Well, you could fool me. That's an gr- excellent model that we have in there. <laughs> well, the only time I had ever put glue and balsa wood together, I was about 12 years old, and I made a model airplane, which wasn't very good. <laughs> so I decided that was not my, my bailiwick. But when I decided we needed a model for the museum, I looked around and nobody else was making models. And I thought, well, I can do that. So I used some drawings that we had from the museum, which showed the, the layout of, uh, from top. And basically it was diagrams showing where all the, the wiring and so forth went. No, no building around it. And then I started figuring out how to, how to do it. And I decided about three foot wide would be a good, I got a uh, three foot piece of balsa, uh, uh, plywood. And I decided to make it in scale. Now in scale is a very popular uh, scale for railroad uh, hobbyists. So I knew I could buy track ready-made the right scale. And I could buy locomotives and so forth to, to dress it up. And then I laid out the how it would be based on the drawings I had. And then had to figure out how to make the structure to hold the, the roof up and so forth. So I designed all the, the in, inner structure and just started putting things together. Now, I have to admit, it took me almost 10 years to do it. Wow because I was not working full-time on it, obviously. And about halfway through, uh, my wife passed away. Mm. Well, that hit me pretty hard, so for six, eight months, I was basically a vegetable. Right. And then when I got back and started doing functioning again, I gave up on the, the roundhouse, and one day I looked, and I said, why am I, I've never used my kitchen table, because I got this thing set, well, Go ahead and finish it. So I did finish it. And then a friend of mine told me about a uh, sale that was going on uh, over in Reno. And she said, you need to look. There's things the museum could use. And I went over, and, and they had really a cool thing. It was about six feet, and six by four feet, I guess, a uh, display case. It was flat, table-like and had uh, plexiglass walls that came up about a foot and a half. And inside were model uh, buildings. It was a display for a subdivision. And I was able to buy it for 150 bucks. Wow. So hauled down to the museum, we took all the the, uh, buildings out and uh, put it back in. And now it's, it's got a prominent place there and the roundhouse sits right in the front, and then we can have other vehicles and so forth sitting around, and, and it, it it really works for the museum. 
It sure does, and especially with it sitting right below that aerial photograph, right. which actually shows you where the Sparks Museum is located in comparison to where right. the roundhouse would have been. Because right. I feel a lot of people don't understand that the the freeway is currently located where the Sparks Roundhouse would have been. Right. And it's my understanding as well that there are still uh, two buildings that were involved with the roundhouse still standing, correct? Well, there's... There's a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, the the original depot that they built in Wadsworth, when they moved down to to uh, Swarks, they actually disassembled it, brought it down, and reassembled it. Wow! And that building is still there today. It's the, the oldest railroad building in, in the city. Uh, if you look, if you're on Clear Midway, where Clear Midway goes under the freeway, you see a Two-story building off to your left slightly. It looks like it has a little control tower on top. That was the original depot in Wadsworth. That's amazing. Now, that, that tower on the top was added in 1947 by Western Pacific because that became their offices and they operated out of there. But it's still there. And uh, there, there are, uh, well, there's a huge brick building, about 200 feet long and 60 but feet high, and that was the uh, the machine shop, and it's still standing. So there's, there's several items in the yards that uh, still date back from 1904. Wow. But I don't, I don't know all of them. I oh, don't. sure. <laughs> now, um, just from my own comprehension, because I find myself getting mixed up a couple times, could you briefly explain the difference between the Central Pacific Railroad and the Southern Pacific Railroad. I mean, I know they're connected, but... No, they aren't. They're, oh. they're, they're different companies okay. entirely. Mm. The Central Pacific Railroad was created in Sacramento basically to compete for the Transcontinental Railroad line that was going to be built. Coming from the east was the Union Pacific Railroad, now, I don't know why almost all railroads in that love to have Pacific in it. <laughs> I guess it meant that they were going to go there. Ah. A lot of them never did. but that. So the Central Pacific Railroad actually started out in Sacramento, and they headed east. The Union Pacific started west, and it was a race to see who could go because you got paid by the mile. Now... Actually, I was surprised to find out that Central Pacific was only supposed to go from Sacramento to Utah. Hmm. And Union Pacific was going to go from basically Mississippi River uh, to Utah. So it's quite a disparity there. But the thing was, the mountains coming across the Sierras is what gave them a lot of money because they, they paid a premium for going over the mountains. And it's good. It took them a long time to get over. Mm-hmm. So then, when Central Pacific operated for a short period of time, then Southern Pacific Railroad came along, and they purchased them. And uh, so, it, it, in 1999, uh, Union Pacific bought them out. And there's this kind of interesting story that uh, came about. The railroad, when you're all strung out like that, you got to 
got a community to take with some way. Well, before radios came around, the way that the station masters would tell the, the engineer or the conductor they had something important, they had kind of a, a Y-shaped device on a handle, and uh, it was swing-loaded. They'd run a, a string across and, and tie the message at the top and hold it up. They'd stick their arms through and they'd pull the string off and get the message. Well, that worked for a while, but it wasn't very, very efficient. They said, how about radios? Well, in the early 30s, radios were not that efficient. Mm. They were big, they were bulky. Uh, it, it just weren't working well. During World War II, the military drove the industry to make radios more reliable, smaller, more compact. Uh, <laughs> they created the walkie-talkie. Oh, now, if you watch in movies, you see the walkie-talkie is things about a foot in length and six, four to six inches of square, humongous dude. And today we've got these little tiny things. But that was state-of-the-art in those days. Because wow. there was no such thing as transistors. It was all tubes. So they started getting radios. Uh, they wanted to put radios in. And uh, they got to looking around. And they said, okay, fine, now we got them, so station masters can talk to trains as they come through. Well, the home office wanted to be able to talk to trains too. Well, how do you do that? Because there's no train, no radio powerful enough to cover the whole country. So they had to start stringing lines, transmission lines along. Southern Pacific ended up laying 6,000 miles wire for communications. Wow. So they were all over the whole. Now, Southern Pacific area was from the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River and Portland, Oregon down to the Mexican border. So it's a big chunk of the country. And they had just all these wires in there. Well, suddenly they invent the cell phone. And Southern Six says, hey, there's got to be some way we can get in on that. That looks like a good deal. <laughs> well, yeah, but how would we do that? Well, you've got all these wires every place. We can create a business right now. Well, what is a wire sy system called? Well, it's a Southern Pacific Railroad internal network for telecommunications. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Well, what are you going to call a new company? Guy sitting in a corner wrote out the letter and looked at the first letter of each word, S P R I N T. Oh. Ah. <laughs> and so they had a company called Sprint. That is amazing. I had no idea about that. Most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and that gets pretty deep when you think about the majority of the people listening to this podcast right now will be doing it through a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that story. These, these are some of the crazy stories that you hear about. Yeah. And and working with a museum like this, somebody would say something and I'll say, that's interesting. So I research to see if it's true. Uh, in one of the exhibits we have is a little man made out of railroad spikes. He's in, in operative right now. He's 
he's worn out. Yeah. Well, it's just a toggle switch, and he'd jump and dance, and they called him our Gandhi dancer. Now, the term Gandhi dancers was applied to the guys who actually maintained the tracks on the railroad. Well, the story came that the name Gandhi Dancer came from the fact that the tools that they were using, like pry bars to move the tracks back in, because trains running around the corner would shift the tracks, mm. were made by the Gandhi Tool Company. And so these guys pushed these lines back, they'd move, move, and that was, that was their Gandhi dance. So they became Gandhi Dancers. That became the, the, the fact. Well, I didn't really believe that. <laughs> I actually did, but I wanted to see where the Gandhi Tool Company was located. I went online and researched. <laughs> Turns out there never has been a Gandhi Tool Company anyplace. Really? In any country. So we still don't know where the Gandhi Dance Tool came, came from. Wow. Well, I mean, that right there, you, you right here are the proof of the importance of educational institutions like the Sparks Museum, and especially given that we are currently in the process of um, revitalizing the original 1931 library feature right. within our building, that where research like this can be conducted, and we, you too can become an expert. <laughs> that's actually the first uh, or the newest library in the state, and it's, it's recognized by the state as a, a library now. It's wonderful. Yeah. Now, I want to shift over to our big three questions that we ask each one of our guests. So our first question is, what sparks you about Sparks? What do you think makes it an interesting place to work, live, or just visit? Well, when I lived in Reno, Sparks was that dirty little railroad town. <laughs> I had nothing good to say about it. <laughs> we won't hold it against you. When we bought a house in Spanish Springs and I lived in Sparks... I got to looking around, and I discovered it was a very progressive little city. It was clean. Uh, at city council meetings, someone would come up with an idea. They'd say, well, let's check it out. They'd do it. In Reno, somebody comes up with an idea. Well, let's check it out. They hire a consulting firm from California come over and study for six months. They say, okay, that's a good idea. Well, we spent all our money on the study. We can't do it now. So suddenly, Reno wasn't performing. Sparks was. And I like that. Sparks, it's a clean little city. What, what's more to ask for? It's a beautiful little town. <laughs> yeah, I certainly agree. Do you have a favorite story or moment from Sparks history? This could either be a significant moment in history, um, maybe, maybe you're about the railroad, maybe not, or even just a personal memory. Were you here during the um, centennial? Oh, I was. Yes. Yeah? yeah. Could you speak to that a little see, bit? See, I retired from the Navy in 1987 and uh, started volunteering at the Sparks Museum in 1999. So I was here during the, the, the uh, centennial and also the Sparks Centennial in 2005. And there were big celebrations. It means a lot to, to local folks more than anything else. But in my kitchen, I have a, a full set of six beautiful wine glasses. They say Sparks 2005, and I don't even drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though. Wow, what a, what a momentous time to be around in this area. Right now, I'm, I'm cleaning out my house. My, my, my third bedroom is my office, mm -hmm. and 
my daughter looked at it. She said, Dad, when you kick the bucket, I don't want to go through this. Let you and I go through it now and start dung it out. Well, we ran across a beautiful little teddy bear, and on its soles of his feet is the year 2000. He's a centennial or bicentennial uh, teddy bear. Wow. What do you do with something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Find all kinds of weird stuff like that. Wow. Well, maybe uh, maybe you need to turn it into an appraiser. You never know if you have a $2,500 <laughs> teddy bear on your hands. <laughs> I, I seriously doubt that. <laughs> and uh, lastly, since we are a museum with our collections archive, we are always looking for new items or stories or um, memories related to Sparks, the Truckee Meadows history, to add because we believe all of those stories and memories and archival items are worth preserving. So what is one thing that you own? Uh, could be those wine glasses you were telling us about or anything else that you happen to know about in the community that if you had the ability, you would put in a museum. Or I know that you well, yourself so have contributed quite a lot to our collection. Something that I have put into the museum, which I, I can't find right now. I know it's here. Uh, I made typed copies of the 1910, 1920, 1930, and 1940 census for oh, the city of Sparks. Wow. And had them printed out. And they're, they're about, uh, I guess, two feet wide and a foot high. And uh, when I did the first one, 1910, I then put in a, a small article in the quarterly newsletter called, Are We Now Who We Used to Be? and gave a breakdown of the uh, nationalities that showed up in Sparks, and, and it was all people who, that was their first census, and uh, where they came from, and how international the city was to start with. And it wasn't all Italians. Hmm. There were people from all over the world. Wow. And you get all that, that many people, you get Chinese, Italians, Czechoslovaks, French, that's what makes this a cool town. It is everybody. It's not a, oh, lily white, you know. It's, it's, it's a microcosm of the world. And that is, most cities are, but they don't, don't acknowledge it. And I think that's very, very important. I agree. That's, what, that's what's helped put this town together. Wow. Well, I think that that is a perfect note to end this podcast on. I want to thank you so much for being a part of this new endeavor for the Sparks Museum. And thank you so much for your contributions to the museum so far. And thanks for coming today. You're welcome. Thank you. The Sparks Museum podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own Antspace Coworking Entrepreneurial Hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. 
please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time. <laughs>